What is going on, everybody? Hopefully, you guys are all doing well out there. Another day, another podcast for you all today. Thanks for all the emails. I got a lot of emails, Facebooks, uh, comments, tweets. Quite honestly, I, I don't ask for your money. I don't ask you uh, to necessarily listen if you don't want to. Uh, I'm not asking you to go to some sponsor website. Certainly not asking you to go to one of these auction houses and asking you to place a bid and get run up. Uh, not asking anything of that of you, but if you do like this show to continue, I will say probably the one thing you could do is let me know you're listening because I don't really check the stats. I don't uh, have any way to judge if anybody's listening. And we are approaching our, I think this is our eighth year, somewhere in that range. And our almost 200 episodes, 200 podcasts. So, yeah, at this point, you know, if you don't have financial reasons to do it, if you don't have any other motivations, promotional methods, any kind of book that I'm not selling a book, maybe later on, maybe maybe when I get later in life, I'll sell a book to you guys or something like that. We'll see. But today, what I'm selling to you is just a handful of topics. Some of these came in from some listeners, so I certainly appreciate that. We got uh, an update on Check Out My Cards little bit of check out my cards actually a pricing question from a listener and we have an update on my portfolio that i started with a hundred bucks it's about six months ago too don't know exactly when i started i could go back and check if i was prudent but i believe it's been about six months so that i'll give you a little update and things not to spoil it but things are going incredibly well off my hundred dollar investment I speaking of investing, I got a question about investing, so I'll talk a little bit about that. Seems like people want to hear about that, and that's great. Hey, the market's kind of gyrating a little bit um, more to the downside than anything right now, and from what I've learned, that gets that kind of piques people's interest for you know one reason or another. People might want to be liquidating the four hundred one k, might want to be buying other assets less risky assets, whatever it might be. Other people might see this as their time to sell, might run to the hills and buy your, your beach home in, in uh, Pebble Beach. If you do that, invite me. So I'd, lo- I'd love, to, love to spend a night or two in Pebble Beach on someone else's dime. Um, another, some comments about um, some other topics that... Uh, relating to where to buy cards, a little daily fantasy. We'll mix that in. And lastly, just some vintage cards. I'm going to talk a little bit. That'll be our last topic. We might even have a break today. Might might have to, you know, kick back and relax, pop a lemonade or something. Might, might be a Coors Light at that point. It's, it's early for me. But um, we'll talk a little bit about vintage cards. So first thing is first. I will pull up my check on my. I have nothing prepared here. I don't have my email up. I'm gonna have to go off memory off some of these emails. Normally, I'd love to pull that up, but okay. Check out my cards. I have a, a pricing question that I'll talk about in a second. But a quick update on my portfolio. If you follow this podcast, I started a second check on my cards account uh, for with a hundred dollars cash. And I've been buying and reselling cards. And this has been, you know, six, seven months now. Not much longer than that. 
certainly not much less than that. I believe it was in the summertime. Uh, so, you know, it's been about six or seven months. Currently, I have $83.78. Uh, this morning, I had over $113, mainly because I sold over 90 Michael Jordan cards for about 30 cents each that I bought for two cents each. So I bought about 100 Michael Jordan cards for about $2, and I sold them all for about almost $30, probably $30. So I had a huge bankroll boost there. So a lot of my cash balance and available cash is kind of derived from that. Not only do I have 83, so I have $83 and 78 cents. And like I said, I went on a buying spree this morning and I'll talk to you about what I'm buying now because my strategy has actually changed a little bit. So I have 923 cards in my inventory. So I have almost my, all my cash back and I have 900 cards. I have an asking price of $522. So that's actually a little bit higher asking price than per card than I normally have. And I'll get to the reason why. I have a couple cards that I don't have asking prices on and that aren't for sale. Some of them are autograph cards that I bought. I think I bought several Will Barton cards that have gone up in price on check on my cards, but they're not selling at that price. Um, but I still bought them very cheaply. So I feel good about those purchases, especially I, I don't know if Will Barton's a free agent, but I can imagine if he is, uh, I won't mind. It won't be terrible if I'm stuck with him into the summer because he chances are he'll draw some interest. I don't know if he's a free agent. I think he is. But anyways, that doesn't really matter. So if you're not familiar with check out my cards, my asking price is $522. Now I could sit here and probably grow to a fairly old man. We could probably have another eight years of the sports card show podcast. And I probably, you know, I might be able to sell through them all at full price. Maybe. I mean, at some point you're gonna have to run a sale. I'm already, you know, I auto accept about 20% off. I believe on check out my cards, maybe even more than that. I don't know. So those are the things you um, want to think about with your asking price. I have $522 as my asking price. I'm really legitimately, if I wanted to liquidate this today, I think I could probably get, you know, a little less than half of that, I would guess. Maybe even less than that. I would guess around $200. I would definitely snap except a $200 offer for all the cards in my portfolio. And in fact, it's a strategy that I might go to at some point. I might try that. I might offer up my whole portfolio and see what kind of offers I can get or see what kind of interest I get on the whole thing. So certainly I could sell the whole thing for $100 or $125. I think it would sell within probably an hour or two if I was offering it up at that price. And then I would have about $180, almost $200 in cash here as a whole. So I basically would have doubled my money now. So that's a strategy, you know, again, I started with a hundred dollars and I doubled my money that might not sound that impressive, but, um, I didn't spend a lot of time on this account. I will say that I check in maybe one, I check in a little bit more now that you can up and open up those upper deck e-packs. I just happened to then go check out 
check out my cards right after that. So it kind of just kind of works in tandem. And I've been having, since I sold all those Michael Jordans, I kind of wanted to re-put all that money to work, so to speak. So my new, my prior strategy was buying very cheap cards. Certainly if two cent Michael Jordan cards come up, I certainly will be a buyer. And if Derek Jeter and, and kind of a really good deals appeal to me at that lower end, but I'm not going to go out of my way to buy a four or five cent card, seven cent card at this moment. I'm focusing more on really what I'm focusing on are very top end players. So I bought Willie Mays today. I bought Dan Marino today. I bought higher end players and also very rare serial numbered cards. Today I spent over $30 on Bowman Chrome gold refractors. Somebody was selling them for not super cheap for about a dollar. But if you look at sales on eBay, if you looked at what other people had these cards priced at, you could price that card anywhere between three and $20. And um, it, it certainly could sell. These were older Bowman Chrome cards, not within the last year or two that, you know, most of these baseball players I was buying are more than likely out of the league or, you know, kind of journeyman minor league type guys. Uh, But I did land a few guys that are in the major leagues right now. And I I bought the card for a dollar. Now I priced it at 20. I don't know if I'll get 20, but um, I certainly saw some sales on eBay, not of the exact card, but similar cards where theoretically or, you know, quite possibly if the right person comes along, I could maybe get 20. And just for the fact that Bowman Chrome cards and Topps Chrome and just any of those kind of upper echelon brands, um, the, the cards tend to sell, tend to draw interest even later on, even if the player's not that desirable because you do have set guys or you have whatever it might be. So the cards are desirable. The cards are desirable, and so when it's not a player like Brett Favre or like a Hall of Fame, you know, congratulations to Brett Favre and all the guys that made it to Hall of Fame, but when it's not one of those kind of type players, I'm looking for higher-end brands right now. I bought some exquisite collection. I bought some old, you know, early 90s Topps Finest Refractor cards. I'm buying brands that people are going to really recognize and they're really going to I think have some staying power in this hobby. I'm kind of avoiding, to be honest, Panini, Collector's Edge, um, some of these brands that could get diluted a little bit. I actually think the Topps brand might get a little stronger now that it doesn't have to kind of, you know, put the glut out that is NFL football cards. So it can kind of exit that market and... Focus primarily on baseball cards. I'm sure they'll have a, a set here or two that you know uses legends or uses some kind of license that, that they're able to use. But um, I think Topps baseball might get the attention that uh, that it deserves. I don't know. I saw miscut. Saw a complaint. A lot of complaints of miscut Topps cards and different things going on with the series one. Quite honestly, I haven't checked it out too much right now. That's not really what I do. I'll definitely check out top series one in a few months when all the cards are out and people have kind of calmed down or maybe when heritage has come out or archives or one of these or 
Gypsy Queen or Allen and Ginter, some of these early, earlier season products. Um, I mean, some of those products come out, you know, more in the summertime, but um, I'll wait until a few more products come out and then I'll start to check out top series one. That's just what I do. You can spend your money how you wish. Um, and certainly if you, you know, if I was at target, I don't really like to go to target and Walmart. Those stores are just, you know, maybe where you live, I can see if you live out, you know, in a more rural environment and those are the only stores around. Yeah. I'd probably be at target every other day, but, um, I tend to try to avoid target. And quite honestly, that's the only place to get cards outside of an e-pack. I tell you what, if tops had, an ability to buy top series one e-packs and then transferred over to check out my cards in a seamless manner, I would have spent likely several hundreds of dollars. I would guess my limit. I probably would have stopped. It depends on what the profit margin was, but I probably would have stopped myself after a few hundred dollars, but uh, certainly would have spent a lot of money. So we'll see if uh, more, I think that's the next kind of step for, for Tops or Panini to see which one kind of capitalize on this EPAC idea, which I think is uh, a definitely good idea. I think, you know, Upper Deck has a trademark on EPAC, so they'll have to call it something else. But I don't think the idea or the process is anything necessarily proprietary. Now, check out my cards might have an agreement with Upper Deck to where they agreed to not supply the same service to someone else but knowing the ownership at check out my cards i would guess he probably at least put if something like that is in play i guess i'm speculating 100 percent here i don't know anything but i would guess you would put some kind of time limit if i was upper deck i certainly would have requested that I don't know if Upper Deck requested that or thought of that, but that was one of the first things I thought of was, hey, if you're Upper Deck and you're getting this deal from certainly your software provider, whoever's doing the website, but certainly from check out my cards is the kind of the key cog in the whole thing. If the idea really works, you wouldn't want then check out my cards to just be able to go call tops on the phone or call Panini or call Leaf and do the exact same thing. Uh, so I would have wanted them to sign something but um, saying that they wouldn't do it for at least a period of time at least for a year or two i think that's what what a reasonable person would would request again i'm speculating we'll see what happens but moving on check on my cards again i don't have the email up but i remember the question so i appreciate the listener shooting this one in asked you know on on check on my cards you can be looking at a card um, and you can hover over like the sales data over in the right corner. This is again on a desktop computer. I'm not exactly sure how this shows up on a telephone, but, um, on a desktop computer, there is a retail price, a list price and kind of a wholesale price. And the listener was wondering why the retail price was often kind of in outer space, almost kind of in Beckett land in some, some respects, kind of overpriced higher higher end of the market and you know in general why the the data wasn't that accurate and I will say that I would think that check on my cards this is still probably something that 
should have maybe a beta attached to it. It's probably something that they're still worked on, working on. It's they're certainly a company not known for its price data. Although I think they have a lot of it, they're probably still in the works of improving this data. I will also say that the sales are reflective of cards on check on my cards. And I will say that check on my cards, the longer you spend on check on my cards, the more you'll find it's kind of its own ecosystem. So certain cards, certain players, certain sports will have a varying range of prices related to eBay, what you could get at a card show, which you might be able to get in a different market. Um, Some of that has to do with the fact that international buyers really love check love check out my cards it's a great site for international buyers in canada in the uk in china wherever buying on check out my cards is a huge advantage because you can buy from a bunch of sellers and kind of combine a big package of cards and get that all shipped to you whereas that would cost you a fortune if you tried to do that on ebay so that's a huge advantage that check out my cards has. I don't think a lot of people realize that, that you can sell your cards, especially basketball cards. You can sell on check out my cards because there's a lot of fans of basketball outside of the United States and baseball as well. Baseball cards too. So I will say that, um, you know, I'm not trying to make sit here and make excuses for check on my cards, but I I will say that I don't use them necessarily for the pricing data. I will say the more, you know, if there's 50 to 100 cards listed on the site, you're probably getting a fairly good accurate reflection of the price at that moment on check out my cards. If there's only a handful of sales over the last 4 years, if there's only two or three cards on the site, Yes, I certainly can see how the four-year sales data might look a little crazy. Also, check on my cards, especially several years ago. I don't know if it's necessarily still the case, but several years ago, you used to be able to buy product. And if you were one of the first people to list those cards on check on my cards, you would get extremely favorable price for your cards. Um, especially like base cards. If like if you opened up Top Series One, and even if you had to pay the extra shipping um, or the extra processing fees for some of your cards, you could probably sell a lot of your base cards for a decent amount of money because you'd be the first one on check on my cards with it. A lot of people have money at this point tied up on check on my cards, and so they're willing to pay a little bit more. So. Long way to, I guess, answer your question is I wouldn't pay too much attention to the, you know, the back history of a price. Again, that's kind of backwards looking. If it's a card you're looking in your own personal collection, I would just judge that based on your own budget and your own experience buying buying and selling cards of, of that player or, or or whatever collectible you're buying. If it's a card you're looking to resell, I would just, you know, like today I bought a card for a dollar. 
I'll tell you the exact card. It was a 2011 Mike Montgomery black border minor league edition serial numbered out of 62. So I bought the card for a dollar and I repriced it for, I think, $2.99. And someone offered me $1.65 for it. And the reason why I priced it at $2.99, somebody else was selling the exact same. There was only two listed on the site and somebody had one at $3.70. So I decided to come in just under them at $2.99 and literally within about an hour of me buying the card and listing it, someone offered me $1.65 for it. So a quick 65 cents off a dollar. Trust me, you do that every day of the week on check out my cards. I don't know who Mike Montgomery is. Maybe he's good. Maybe he's not. But um, in fact, I think I have heard of Mike Montgomery, but either way. I'll take 65 cent return and go put that into my next card. That's just my strategy. Again, I'm kind of mixing the listener's question with, with my strategy here, but um, that's for relisting. Um, Again, I'm not, I wouldn't pay too much. You know, I would always use eBay data. I go to eBay and see what collectors are paying for certain cards all the time on check out my cards, especially now that I'm buying cards that are two, three, four, five dollars. I just want to double check, go to eBay. I know it's a little more time consuming. Maybe in a year or two, I will tell the listener that, hey, maybe in a year or two, check on my cards, devotes a little more time, a little more resources to the pricing data. Maybe it gets a little more accurate. So, um, you know, as you use it, it's something I don't use a lot. But if if you use it and you, and you notice kind of quirks about it, you can certainly send me an email, sportscardshow at gmail.com. Get at me on Facebook or um, you can go to sportscarradio.com and find links to all our social media outlets if you want to contact me that way as well. Just let me know your experiences, you know, any kind of kind of things you see out there as well. I certainly would appreciate hearing from others. Okay, um, quickly, not quickly, we're going to change gears slowly. You don't want to quickly change gears might ruin the transmission so we'll slowly transition kind of to off topic i'm gonna slip this in right here so you guys have to listen and uh we'll get back to talking about baseball cards and stuff like that in a minute but listener asks again i don't have his question up but i do remember his question and i do appreciate it asked uh, essentially where i get kind of investing ideas or investing inspiration or Um, those kind of things kind of for myself. And basically what I do is I find, you know, I think everybody, what everybody would find entertaining is, is different. You know, some people might find listening to podcasts, super entertaining. I certainly do. Some people might find uh, watching TV really interesting. Some people might find reading it, digesting it by reading it. Some people might like to entertain. If you're in the New York area or you're around, I think in Chicago, there's like the Mercantile Exchange. If you're close to that area, it might be fun to just get involved that way. Might be fun to get involved in the stock market via forums and discussion and those kind of ways. But there's a lot of ways to get engaged. And what I would encourage everybody out there is find what is most entertaining to you 
when it comes to stocks and I would get engaged with it on a daily basis. Certainly not necessarily every day, but certainly Monday through about Thursday, even Monday through Wednesday, if you don't want to listen Thursday or Friday. And there's certainly slow times and more more exciting times in, in the market in financial markets. And so you can kind of, you know, my my interest in it kind of wanes at times and, and is certainly heightened at other times as well. And I, I think you can do the same. But what I consistently do, I'll tr- for me, I like turning on CNBC. I like watching Bloomberg. Are all those guys pumping stocks that they own? Absolutely. Are all the guests paying to be there? So they and you know so they can have Piper Jaffrey behind there and it makes Piper Jaffrey look like they're these experts because oh they're on CNBC and they're just paying to be there for the most part you know some of the some of the guests I wouldn't say a hundred percent of the guests are paying for their spot but a lot of the investment advisors and all those guys do it to make themselves look good and then they're on there to pump a client stock or pump the company stock or whatever so. You got to take all, you know, you got to digest everything that you see on CNBC and Bloomberg with that eye, but, or with those like colored sunglasses on, but it doesn't mean it's not entertaining. Doesn't mean you can't learn something, you know, do I buy, buy, buy and sell, sell, sell every time Jim Cramer says so? No, not oftentimes I do the opposite of what he says. But he, I think he's incredibly entertaining. I'll watch him. I don't watch him every day, but I'll watch it. There's a lot of podcasts. There's there's just a breath, a huge amount of money flowing through the financial system. So you can imagine, like the the if there's sports card podcasts and blogs, you can imagine that uh, you know the financial world is in a whole different stratosphere. You know. There's all kinds of websites and ways you can ways you can get engaged. So the first thing I would find some kind of media since you since a lot of you guys listen to podcasts, find a financial podcast that you like. Some of them focus on strategy, some focus on kind of daily topics. The kind of three, the two that I listen to the most, again, you might not find these ones entertaining. But I like Market Wrap with Mo. Again, he's going to be on there trying to get you to call him, call Compact Asset Management, and talk to Mo. He's going to want, he's going to tell you to do that every ten minutes. But um, I find him entertaining, and I think his advice is often very sound and very. Re- I don't not necessarily reassuring, but. Um, he gives you very sound advice. And as a young person, I like to hear guys like that because it kind of, you know, as I'm investing high flying penny stocks and and kind of, you know, risky assets, it's good to hear someone like Mo. The other one I like is on a daily basis is Power Trading Radio. Now, these guys are going to want to get you to go to their class, which is going to get you to pay for some kind of quote proprietary trading system essentially if you listen to the podcast enough you'll realize that their their system is something you can you can kind of formulate on your own Um, but I like that they kind of go over all the markets they recap gold the guy Merlin that hosts the show 
is it will give it to you straight most of the time. I mean, he's on there, you know, again, pumping that, you know, come and, and pay for their classes. That's how they make money. But, um, you know, he'll give it to you pretty straight on there. And so I like guys like that. And so those are the two that I listen to. Motley Fool is out there. Wall Street Journal has kind of a daily podcast. There are so many. It's 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 crazy. So um, I would uh, absorb yourself into that. In terms of getting specific ideas, the, uh, it's hard for me to say, you know, this is how you generate your stock ideas. I think it all depends on where you are in life. If you're close to retirement, if you're saving for retirement, if you already have, uh, you know, if you already have a quarter million saved up for retirement, you know, your strategies are going to differ from the guy that has 250 saved up for retirement. So, but I will tell you right now for me, for the last year, I've been focused on quality, high, high quality. So Apple, um, Nike, AT&T, Verizon, Verizon's blown up. I mean, I can't believe, like I bought Verizon as kind of like a little, you know, kind of middling sideways stock and it's. Uh, I mean, I might have to sell like I wasn't I, I bought it in anticipation to just hold it. But now they're looking to buy Yahoo. They're making all these moves. So it's kind of driving interest in the stock. I don't know if it's, you know, worth the the run up that it, I think it's gone up 20, 30 percent since I bought it. So I, I don't know. I wasn't expecting that. So I've been focused on real high quality, real high quality names and that's all that I've been buying. I've been buying metals. I've been accumulating it myself at coin. I've been go to coin stores at least once or twice a month over the past year or two, acquiring metals. And so those finally have gotten kind of have caught a bid and caught interest of people. So I kind of like that. But uh, that'll probably be the next thing that I end up unloading. But I've been unloading a lot of stuff. I've been moving out of speculative stuff, stuff that kind of ran up. And I can't say that I moved out of all of it or all all of it ran up and I was able to get out of the top. Certainly, that's not what you want to focus on. But I think my ideas really come from my mood, my risk tolerance for the last Eight year again. People are looking at the market right now. Oh, it's going down. Bear market, whatever. Well, that's in the last. If you're looking at like the last couple years, I've been in this market for a solid eight years now. Nine. I mean, it's longer than that. I have investments dating back prior to that. But in terms of really, when I focused on trying to make it to where it actually generates income that I then use to to pay my bills and to, you know, live my life, go on vacation and stuff. Um, you know, it's still up a lot. The stock market is still up a lot. It, you know, I've had stocks that have still run up a lot. They've pulled back 20, 30%, but I'm still up a lot of money. So, you know, it all depends on where you're at. My mood is again, is more toward quality now. High quality, multi-billion, trillion-dollar companies. I want to get some Coke, Coca-Cola shares pretty soon. I want to get. I'm starting to look at McDonald's again. I was down on them, and maybe that was when I should have been more serious about buying them. But um, 
I don't eat at McDonald's. I haven't ate at McDonald's in in probably ten years. But you know, doesn't doesn't mean uh, other people don't. So I think your ideas. I, I would say your ideas come from you know finding stocks that you like. I'm a customer of AT and T. Bought AT and T stock. I wear Nike stuff. I love Nike stuff. I love the clothes. I love the shoes. I love the brand, so I buy Nike stock. You know, I buy, I drink Pepsi, so I have Pepsi stock. You know, I buy all the Apple stuff, buy the iPhone, iPhone Pro or iPad Pro, everything. I Apple TV, pretty much every product they come out with, I buy it. I want to buy one of the new MacBook Pros, but they're like they're a lot of money, and I just bought the iPad Pro, so I had to make a decision there. But my next laptop purchase will probably be a, a Mac. So, you know, I buy Apple stock. Make myself feel better about it. You know, my wife shops at Victoria's Secret. I have a bunch of Victoria's Secret shops. So, you know, it, it just makes you feel better. So, I would, you know, whatever you like. If you like riding motorcycles, take a look at Harley-Davidson. If you like cars... You know, there's a wide range of car stocks and, 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 you know, you can invest all the way down to the manufacturers of the lights and the components. What I would do also is focus on business models you're very familiar with. Maybe you're a lawyer. Maybe you're a food distributor. Maybe you're a policeman. Maybe you're a teacher. Whatever it is. There are stocks that relate to all those industries and and I would focus on ideas and, you know, you might have a vendor that's really good. You know, my wife used to work at an optometry place and she used to tell me, oh, this company is, you know, great to work with. And I love this company and this company sucks. And this, you know, this company is terrible to work with. Their reps are terrible to work with. It's so hard to order. And I take that information. I say, hey, it's probably not isolated. You know, this is a very successful optometry, uh, optometrist that she worked for and has a huge amount of volume. I'm sure is a very good cut. You know, it's not a, not a multi, you know, multi-million dollar customer but certainly was probably a good customer for a lot of these people so when i heard hey this brand either treats its reps well and treats you know all its vendors well down the line that's probably represent representing of the whole company so there's all kinds of little inside knowledge that you can acquire and i certainly would always have your ears open for all that stuff and i think that's the key is just don't think of it as this you know, you got to sit down and grind for an hour or two every day. Just try to expose yourself to it. I have Bloomberg radio and CNBC radio on my satellite in my car. So, you know, I know what buttons two and I think five for that. So I'm listening to that during the day when I'm driving around, you know, going to the grocery store, going here, going to get a Slurpee or something. I'll have that on. I'll be listening to it. I'll have it on TV most of the day around here unless there's some big sporting event and sports going on. I'll have that on. But for the most part, I'm watching stock news and um, I would encourage you guys to kind of just expose yourself to it a little bit each day and try to look to make it grow. Um, And then after that, once you have a good idea. Don't be scared to ask other people's opinion about it. Don't be scared to uh, 
Uh, read the other side. I think that's the most important thing. If you love a stock, go find somebody that hates it and read their ideas. And if you, even after reading their ideas, you you feel still strongly about the stock, I think that that's a good signal that to go ahead and and make that investment. I certainly did that with Apple over the last you know month or so. I've added and added about three different times to my Apple shares because I keep reading, oh, Apple sucks. Oh, Apple, you know, it's peaking, whatever. But I keep looking at the underlying data, you know, the fact that they have like 2% penetration in India, which is like, you know, on a macro view, a lot of people view India as like the next China. So if, if Apple can penetrate... India, the way it has, certainly the United States, we're talking about billions of dollars, but we'll see. I, I don't think they'll they'll get to that kind of penetration, but certainly they can grow to maybe 8, 9, 10% penetration, and that's a lot of money in a country the size of India. So that's just one of my, one of my supporting thoughts. But anyways, so SeekingAlpha.com, I actually contribute to that site, so I will give that very specific site a plug. Um, so seeking alpha, you can contribute yourself. If you want to write on PSA cards, uh, there probably should be some really good analysis on some of this shill bidding stuff that some of the PSA guys are tied to. That stuff should be posted on seeking alpha. I mean, if I had more interest in that business model, not to mention <laughs> PSA's uh, coin division is so strong that it's hard to punch holes in collector's universe, um, you know, but it's certainly something that should be brought up to shareholders as a, as an example of how uh, there's risk involved in this business. If your reputation goes down, certainly something like PCGS and PSA and the, the companies around that company could, could, could decline. So hopefully that we touch a little bit there on investing. Uh, anybody has any, I, ideas, questions. I like it to be more of a discussion. I don't want it to make it seem like I'm on here telling you what to invest in. Certainly don't take the the stocks that I've mentioned here and run out and go go and buy them. You want to do your all your own research. After you get involved into it, after you listen to CNBC and after you listen to the podcast, you'll like to start listening to conference calls of very specific companies. I don't typically listen to the very large companies. I like to listen to the very small companies that very few people are covering. So I like to listen to, you know, I have some some very obscure investments into some very small companies, you know, like $20 million company, $10 million companies. I'm listening to the calls because they're really talking to me, you know. So I'll listen to that. And then if you get really deep into it, you want to learn how to read financial documents. And I might do a YouTube video. I will say within probably the next couple months, I'll do a YouTube video about just a quick overview of how to read financial documents. It's not really as hard as people think, but nobody really explains it very well, you know, out there for a beginner. They kind of all expect you to know what to do. So if you don't know what to do, you might look at a big 50 page financial document and think, you know, no one's reading that, but people are reading that. You just got to know what to look for. So I will try to help you guys um, with that because that's really the key to investing. You got to read through the financial documents. You got to get down to the nitty gritty 
and and draw out pull out the analysis yourself you you know great investors don't get information pushed to them so the, what i mean by that is Great investors don't sit around and get all their investment ideas pushed to them by CNBC, pushed to them by Piper Jaffrey, pushed to them by some guy on a podcast or pushed to them by, you know, a newsletter service the, you know, great investors pull the information out. So they're going to the financial documents that are all public, publicly available. Again, big companies are going to be 80, 90, 100 pages long, maybe, and have all kinds of text. It's all text, very few pictures, no pictures. In fact, usually it's all text and you got to know how to kind of digest that down to the four, five, eight, ten pages that matter. And you got to read through those. So I'll try to, um, you know, help you guys figure out how to do that, because that's ultimately how you're going to become a really, really successful investor is if you ultimately pull the investment idea to yourself by find you know originating the idea um, doing the research and kind of putting the numbers and everything together on your own it's just like prospecting baseball players quite honestly you know probably the best prospecting ideas that you guys and the best hits that you guys probably have might be a guy that you saw in high school might be a guy you saw in college might be a guy you saw in the minor leagues might be a guy you saw on TV or you got to, you know, you did get some inside information. A friend of a friend knows him. Or you just happened to pull one of his cards and start fault. You then did some investigation. Oh, crap. His, you know, his dad was an Olympian and his his mom was uh, a weightlifter. And, oh, he batted, you know, he set all these records at, at a Division One college. And, and, you know, he was a second-round pick, and, and there's a hole at the position. So, you know, those are the kind of things you want to think about. The exact same thing happens in stocks. In fact, it, it, it that's why I love it so much because, you know, think about prospecting and times in it by a million. And that's what you have by digging into stocks, especially very un- undercovered ones. Verizon, AT&T, Apple, Nike. Tesla, Amazon, these big high-flying stocks are pretty well covered, and there's not a lot of mystery most of the time, although with Tesla, there was some interesting stuff that came out this week. Elon Musk is a risk taker. Gotta love the guy. So there's my investing tips. Moving on to, oh, very briefly, I didn't see a lot uh, again, this was tipped off to me by somebody else. I didn't have time or the patience to sit through the th- thread, but certainly this is something uh, everybody wants to be aware of. I will educate myself a little bit more on this topic, and I'll come back and probably lead off, try to lead off with it onto a show, probably the next one, just so it's right in front of people right in the beginning so I catch a little bit more people's attention than 40 minutes into the podcast. But what I would like to draw people's attention to is it appears every single major auction company has been involved in a systematic long term, probably stretching out a very, very, very long time, uh, basically shill bidding up uh, some of the largest collectors of sports memorabilia, people like Keith Orbelman and, and large, large millionaire, multimillionaire collectors. They bid up 
systematically over a course of a time. And it's not just one auction company. It's pretty much all of them. There's people involved at grading companies like SGC and PSA. And there's all this stuff going on. A lot of the, the details are on this net 54 baseball forum. So a lot of the details are going there and there's a, a quite a hot thread on that. There's a little bit of chatter going on, but not surprised guys. Uh, maybe I should have been more vocal about this uh, over the years, but certainly the auction houses have contact or, you know, solicited uh, my sp- my good, good wanted me to promote them. Essentially, I've gotten emails from auction houses. Hey, can we work something out? Hey, can you put something on your website? And I've always now I don't think I've ever responded, mainly because I always felt these auction houses. You know, there's all this shady stuff always connected to these auctions. And I I know I know this because my brother has been to the national, and you get the vibe for it tremendously there maybe again i've said this on the show a lot before you know my me and my brother grew up in a very dangerous town and it got more and more dangerous as i got older and so you became more and more cynical and definitely more and more aware of your surroundings and learn to not trust. It's not that I have trust issues. I trust people. I don't have a problem trusting people. That's not the problem. The problem is, is I'm from a town where you shouldn't trust anybody. So my brother goes to the National and sees all these auction houses. He hears a lot of the little chatter behind the scenes. Sees a lot of the little handshake deals. And a lot of the little butt slapping that goes on behind the scenes there and has always um, always told me to steer clear of ever giving an auction house uh, too good of a word. So certainly not everybody's done that. There are a lot of blogs out there, other podcasts even that have, uh, you know, taken these guys money and not that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, uh, just something you want to be aware of out there in the collecting world. There's a reason I've been around for eight years. One is mainly because I've been successful in other businesses that I, I can do that. I can basically supplement this or subsidize this um, with, you know, not having to worry about making money on it, basically. And the other reason is I've always tried to have your best interest in mind. So I can take four or five months off and come back and people still listen. I can go on for 30 minutes about buying stocks and and people aren't turned off to a certain degree. So just be careful out there. I know I said on a show or two ago I wasn't, you know, I wasn't totally butthurt about like kind of the Brad Ziegler situation. I think running people up is not good for the hobby. I wish these 
there was a way the technology kind of evolved to where shield bathing became more more obvious or more um, easily detectable. What I will say for you as a customer, pick your price, put it in, and walk away. If if you want a Brett Favre football autograph football and you want it for $189, put your bid in, and if you win, you win. If you don't, just wait. Wait for another day. Same with all these cards. If it's a one-of-one card and your max is 150, put 150 in and walk away. Then you never, then you never, you're never susceptible to shield bidding. Yeah, the guy that owns the card or the guy that's consigning the card might come up and bid you all the way up to, you know, bid you all the way up to 140 or whatever. But if he outbids you, then he screwed himself. He could cancel the bid at that point, I guess. That's what a lot of these guys do. But hey, you were going to pay 150 anyways. Maybe pay, maybe pick a max bid and knock 30% off. So if you're going to pay 150, I you know, I, I didn't major in math and actually flunked most of my most of my math classes in college. But pick pick a, you know, if it was $100, bid 70. And that's it. Then you can't get burned. Bid just bid just enough to where you still think it's a good deal. Maybe always go go into it saying, "Hey, I want to resell this," even though you might not want to. That's why guys that resell often get the good deals is because they always have that eye of, "Hey, I want to pay a price to where I can resell this." But hey, if you get stuck with it, or if you want to keep it in the end, then you you got it for a good price. And so, you know, shill bidding is going to happen on eBay, at these auction houses, everywhere. It's going to happen. But I think the way you protect yourself is just picking a price, maybe reducing it by a certain percentage every time, and putting that price in and walking away. Certainly in a live auction environment, it's a little different might get caught up with the emotion and stuff like that. But but I would bring someone with you. Bring your wife. If you're married, bring your wife. That, that'll stop you real quick. So just wanted to t- touch on that. Couple other very quick topics. Uh, got, a, got a listener tip saying he likes to go to thrift stores. I actually see a, a guy on Twitter, a few people on Twitter, routinely show a thrift shop finds uh, one of the listeners to the show. Uh, I'm not sure if he listens anymore, but uh, San Jose Fuji often goes to goes to thrift stores and stuff like that and uh, finds finds things. And uh, yeah, I think thrifts, especially if you're in a large, I mean, I don't think it matters what what size city you're in, but certainly the larger the city, the more stuff that's getting donated and kind of, you know, cleaned out of garages or cleaned out of storage units or whatever. So you can find all kinds of stuff. 
and obviously in a larger city, there's just more goodwills and things you can, you can go to. And it might be on a way to, you know, a place to eat, or maybe, you know, you got 30 minutes for lunch or whatever, uh, certainly would do it. I will tell you, uh, semi off topic back when I, back when I first started this podcast, I had a card shop. It wasn't going well. This was in 2007, eight ish. 2006 was great. Opened up in 2006. I was going online before that for four or five years prior to that. So, um, and I was in college at the same time. So, um, graduate, well, I didn't, I don't, I think I was still in college when I opened my shop. Um, so, but I was at the tail end of my college career. So like I'm an athlete, but, uh, so things were good. 2006, 2007, it got really bad. 2008, it was terrible and nobody was spending any money. What I did start doing was going to thrift shop and looking for design, typically designer clothing, find like high end women's jeans, high end men's dress shirts, or just high end jackets that somebody just happened to donate that you can pick up for four or five dollars. I remember my brother finding several pairs of jeans that we bought for four or five dollars that sold, you know, in excess of a hundred dollars often. Um, obviously you have to have an eye for a little bit for fashion. Make sure you're not picking up a counterfeit too. Um, that's usually pretty easy. If you have an eye for looking at baseball cards and studying their collection, you know, their condition, excuse me. Um, you can look at really nice pairs of jeans and just tell if they're made in China or if they're made, you know, a lot of the higher real high. Sometimes we'd find high end jeans that were actually made in the United States and you could just see the stitching and the quality of the material is just, you know, exponentially better than a fake pair of jeans. So I don't know if that market is still hot or if that's something you can still do. It probably certainly depends on where you live out here in California. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of moms and a lot of, you know, a lot of young girl, you know, there's just a lot more people out here. So there's obviously a lot more, a lot more fashion out here. There's certainly department stores in every city, most cities, not every city, but certainly cities in excess of a couple hundred thousand people. There's always a nice, you know, Macy's or a Dillard's or, you know, as you get into the, the bigger cities, you got Nordstrom's and, and, and the big, big ritzy department stores. So certainly a strategy, Why you know, if you go there and you strike out on cards, you know, take a look at, at other, you know, a lot of people call that antiquing or kind of estate shale kind of hopping or garage sale, you know, you know, picking or there's a lot of terms for it, but, um, it certainly, it worked for me. I, I took, a, I'll be a hundred percent honest with you. I took a lot of that money that I made. Uh, obviously I paid bills and things like that, but I was also investing. I didn't have a lot of money at the time and I was buying, I was trying to buy stocks because the stock market was crashing and, and continued to crash. L- luckily for me, a year or two later, it was still great time to buy even into 2009 and even 2010. It was still a really, you know, obviously looking back, uh, you know, it was hard at the time. I certainly doubted myself at the, at the time many times. But uh, certainly was a good time to buy. So there's a lot of cool things, a lot of good ways to make money like that. And certainly would would suggest it to any of you out there that uh, might be in that position. And certainly if you're into selling on eBay, again, I, I don't 
you know, would I go back to that strategy if I was dead broke? Probably not because I know some other strategies that are probably more effective uh, on a time basis to do that kind of thing. You know, buying and selling on eBay is kind of this like hamster wheel type business model that I try to get off of. I like the sit back on the beach business model, you know, sit in your apartment and record sports card podcast model, sit around and play golf. Um, later I'll be volunteering, um, for about two hours later today. I like those kind of business models so I can do what I want. I'm going to go have lunch after that. I'm going to probably get a Slurpee and then I'm going to go to the gym. Then I'm going to go to the grocery store and then I'm going to start cooking dinner. I have some chicken in the fridge. So I'll probably do a chicken dish. So I'll have to come up with some food. So I like the kickback kind of lifestyle, but, um, you know, to each their own. Lastly, last email I think I got was Daily Fantasy. That's right. Um, somebody wondered why I hadn't really promoted my Daily Fantasy website. I think it's not anything intentional. My website's dailyfantasygrind.com, dailyfantasygrind.com. I'm really only providing a little bit of basketball commentary right now. I am looking for a fantasy baseball writer. Actually, fantasy anything. Again, this is all contingent on it staying legal, and especially in the larger markets, California, New York, Florida, really California primarily. Um, I'm looking for fantasy writers. I can pay you a, I would guess, a reasonable wage, close to minimum wage, depending on where you live. Depending on where you live, it might be a dollar over minimum wage or two. So... Um, you can contact me. It's not a, you know, it's not an eight hour day thing. It, it, quite honestly, it's like a 30 minute hour max per day type job. But I am looking for any daily fantasy writer um, outside of college football. I've got college football covered. But if you know about MLB, NASCAR, golf, tennis, no, they're not doing tennis, UFC, any of them, I, I'm certainly willing to pay you, especially if you're good. Um, I, I certainly, if you prove that you're good, I can certainly pay you more than minimum wage for it. But you have to prove to me uh, that you're competent, at least at it for a while. So Daily Fantasy Grind. Um, the reason why I don't get in here on the podcast is I'm not, I, I don't, you know, I didn't have any problem getting traffic to the website. Uh, you know, in fact, I had so I had so much of it. Sometimes it bogged down the site just a little bit, uh, usually Saturday mornings, you know, Friday night, Saturday mornings, obviously for football season, I would get just a ridiculous amount of uh, push onto that website, which is hosted on a very small, you know, like a $10 a month. And I have like 10 other sites on the on the hosting account because normally it gets, you know, a couple hundred people a day, but uh, college football. I didn't do a lot of NFL analysis. I can imagine if you have a really popular NFL analysis site, you'd get the same kind of traffic. Um, and I might try to do that next year. If it's legal, I might push into that, but, um, I don't know. Anybody can, uh, I've been doing it for three or four years now. So, uh, I think this is my third, that was my third complete year kind of having the site. So, it's, I will say it's kind of a market that's dried up, at least from the referral side onto DraftKings and the FanDuel. A couple years ago, you know, 
if you didn't get us a, a referral to those places like every single day, like you you weren't putting up good content or you you didn't have a good offer, you know. Now it's hard, you know, more and more people have signed up for FanDuel and DraftKings that having that be a revenue model is probably not a good idea, but there's a lot of other ways. I actually made a lot of money. I made more money referring traffic to other sources um, outside of FanDuel and DraftKings this year. Um, So that market is emerging. So I'm hoping it stays legal because um, if it stays legal, I'll probably do it for another season. And then chances are I'll sell, I'll try to sell that website into, I probably should have sold it this last year. Didn't really anticipate all this legal stuff happening as quickly as it did. Um, but we might look back and say this was kind of like the peak for daily fantasy. Um, or we might look back and say it was kind of just kind of a hiccup in the road to kind of a, 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 an excel, a reacceleration for next football season. We'll see. Um, certainly something interesting to follow. So we've touched on check on my cards. We've touched on investing, a little daily fantasy, little thrift store buying. A uh, little, you know, scam, those scam guys that run those auction houses. We've touched on a lot of stuff. Let's take a break. We're going to do that. We're going to take a break and come back very quickly. And we'll talk about vintage cards. Um, not a ton here, but, um, you know, this is a topic we'll revisit. Kind of be one of my topics I'll, I'll keep revisiting especially when I run out of ideas, it'll be a topic that it'll be one of my go-to topics, but I'll briefly talk a little bit about, you know, there's a lot of guys collecting like, you know, brand new tops and brand new sets, whatever sets come out, everybody's collecting that stuff. Well, you know, vintage cards have likely if you want to go do some statistical analysis or do some data mining on it have probably proven to be one of the most consistent and certainly safest bets you could have made in the sports trading card market and so certainly if you have a lot of money invested uh certainly if you're trying to into buying and selling it's it's uh you know you do want to introduce that into your um, portfolio of buying and selling. It's just like, hey, I had a lot of stocks and they ran up and, and they were doing good. Well, I started buying, you know, a little bit of bonds, a little bit of silver, a little bit of real low volatility stuff. Procter and Gamble, kind of these big, kind of safer quote, say, you know, nothing safe in a crash or a real serious de- economic downturn, but, um, Certainly, larger billion-dollar companies are a little more insulated. So vintage cards can be kind of considered the same kind of thing. So we'll talk about that right after this. Oh, I don't think so. Oh, was it for real? Damn sure. Oh, what was the deal? 
Cards, that is right. We'll talk a little bit about not any real specific sets right now. I think there's, you know, you really want to define your budget, I think. I think with any kind of collecting, you know, I've tried to stress that on the show for a long time now. Probably almost eight years now. I've I've tried to, you know, encourage collectors out there, especially ones getting back into the hobby, to really define your budget. Then I don't think you can get on kind of the wrong side of this hobby. Just like people get on the wrong side of, you know, going to Vegas, get on the wrong side of Daily Fantasy, get on the wrong side of betting on sports, getting on the wrong side of, you know, making a big purchase uh, that they didn't think through. You know, set a budget. And my wife and I are, um, you know, shopping for a house right now. And her budget is, is one, is, is one place. And my budget is in a complete other direction. So, um, you know, we'll probably end up meeting in the middle, but, uh, I really believe like, you know, especially with like home buying, Especially when you're spending that much money, when it's like three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars, when it's that much money, that's a lot. That's a huge obligation. So you definitely want to take that seriously. And obviously, I think you want to come under, especially with a home. I mean, you guys can go out here and get way better advice than what I can give you. But you know, if you're if you qualify for a three hundred thousand dollar home, four hundred thousand dollar home, you need to be taking. You need to be looking at homes well under that you don't need to be but just because you get approved for a three hundred fifty thousand dollar home doesn't mean you need to go out and buy a three hundred fifty thousand dollar home you know maybe 300 max 280 270 would be would probably be better so i take the same approach with cards if i'm out there and you know without looking at very specific vintage cards but i think what you first want to do and i'll get to the point why i'm kind of saying you want to define your budget with vintage cards is Vintage cards has a, a big range of values um, for each individual card. There might be a, the the same Mickey Mantle card, depending on what condition it is in. It doesn't necessarily have to be Mickey Mantle. It could be Mickey, Mickey No Name. Depending on what condition it is in, is going to really drive how much you're going to have to pay for it. And in some cases... It, you know, the cost of some of these vintage cards are going to well exceed what you're capable of buying. And the reason why I say that is with normal car or like modern cards, cards you can get today, you can always get lucky in a pack. You can always buy a $90 box or get a case even or just one pack at Target or one pack at the card shop and or one pack on an e-pack and you can get lucky. And you can get a big card, but in vintage cards, 
you, you know, the Mickey, you know, there's a repack stuff and I, you know, that's more or less gambling in itself too. But, um, you know, if you want the Mickey Mantles, you are pretty much confined to your budget. You know, there's not a whole lot of luck involved in getting a PSA eight, you know, 56 mantle. So you want to keep that in mind. And I think you want to set your site. That's the first thing to do is set your expectation level with your budget. So if you're on a baller's budget, go ahead and start shopping around. I'd, I'd really become a really uh, good, good determiner. Make your own judgment on cards. Be really good at, I think, looking at an eBay auction or maybe looking at a seller who has a card in this case that's maybe graded PSA eight or PSA seven. But I think what you want to do, if you're on a really big, but it doesn't matter what budget you are on, but what I would encourage with vintage cards is become an expert at grading the card yourself and maybe noticing differences between PSA sevens. And maybe there's some differences between BGS and SGC and, and whatever other companies are out there. But you'll probably notice within PSA, certain PSA 7s look a little nicer than some PSA 7s. And I'm not saying you need to get that card regraded or or anything like that. But if you're going to be buying a PSA 7 card or a PSA 6 card, whatever grade you're going to be buying, what I would do, unless the card's in, in incredibly low supply, I would really shop around and try to find the nicest one. That is the best advice I can give you. Can't say that I particularly am that big of a connoisseur of sports cards, but uh, quite honestly, with the coin industry, I know and read a lot of advice that basically gives the same advice for coins. And I believe coins is probably a little more subjective to the grading. It's probably, I don't want to say it's harder to grade coins, but there's more points of wear and more ways a coin can be kind of worn down. Whereas with a, a trading card, it's a little more obvious. And also trading cards inherently, while not in the 50s and 60s, um, were kind of meant to be collected in, you know, in the modern time. So, and similar to coins too. But there were people collecting coins. There have been people collecting coins. So what I would encourage you to do, my first tip with vintage is become very good at identifying grades yourself. Obviously, that's hard to do on eBay um, and stuff like that. But maybe what you can do if you do have a decent budget, maybe buy, you know, buy the card on eBay and maybe you buy a second one and a third one. And then what you end up doing is maybe keeping Maybe just keeping one or starting forming sets around uh, cards that might be undergraded, um, so to speak, and trying to avoid the cards that are overgraded. Maybe ones that have little spots or little flaws that you can see that while the card did come overall PSA 7, maybe you've seen finer examples of it. So that would probably be my first tip is, is be very selective when it comes to grade if you're going that route. The some of the selling strategies, I know a lot of people listen to the show, they want to be a seller. I think um, if you're a new collector, even if you're a collector that kind of accumulates cards a lot. I will say that they'll probably become a time in your life where you might want to 
sell the cards, and I actually think it's healthy for your sports card bankroll to actually turn a little bit of your inventory over. Maybe if you're a vintage guy, I totally understand holding on to a lot of those cards, kind of hoarding them almost. I can totally see that. But certainly if you're a modern guy collecting these modern athletes that often get injured and, you know, they get arrested. And so I was going to say worse things, but basically they get arrested and, um, stuff like that. So, um, you know, you probably want to turn that stuff over a little bit more, but, um, vintage, if you want to play around with the buying and selling of vintage, obviously the prices move a little bit, a a lot slower than a modern day athlete. So I think one of the strategies obviously is I finding raw cards that you identify and then get for a good price and then obviously get them graded or, or able to sell them at a higher price because the person that sold them to you maybe didn't realize how good of a condition they were in or didn't price that to a premium. So, you know, buying and flipping, buying and grading and flipping is one strategy. I think now we're getting to the point where, there, you know, you can probably, I don't want to say like the, you know, the, the 70s. Really, when I think of vintage baseball, I'm really thinking of the entire 1960s era and before. 70s, a little bit. Certainly, there were some early sets. I know 70, 71, 72 can be very valuable, especially in very good condition. And as you move along, I think as you get into the late 70s, And obviously into the 80s, the cards just right now aren't as collectible, certainly are in much more plentiful supply, certainly in in good condition. So and and oftentimes uh, in the package still. So we'll see what happens to demand over time for for those cards. But it's not, you know, the, the buying and selling of the vintage cards is is likely a little bit slower of a game, you know, where there's there's probably a little more demand, there's a little more sexiness to trading the hot patch cards or the latest immaculate cards or the latest flawless cards or the cards with diamonds and golds in them. Those the you know, it's kind of like trading shiny automobiles, but vintage cards is probably like, you know, almost like selling used cars or maybe even really nice ones depending on how um, expensive they are. Obviously, again, it all really depends on your budget. Most of the, most of the people listening to this show are probably on a a slightly lighter budget. I would assume probably in, in like just like myself probably don't want to spend more than um, you know, 100 or 2. For me, it's more than more than $100 on cards in i hate to say it but really more than a hundred dollars on cards in about a year for me would probably be a lot but certainly if i've been telling people all week friends that have been texting me tweeting you know dming me and stuff i and my brother too if tops and panini uh copy the epac model i think my budget every month or even every release will go up exponentially so from zero to a hundred two hundred dollars i could probably very comfortably do a hundred two hundred dollars especially if i was reselling a portion of it 
to get a little bit of a return, a small amount of return. Doesn't necessarily have to be profit, but if I can get a little bit of my money back, um, that would probably feed me to continue that and sustain that. So we'll see what happens. But um, vintage cards. So buy and grade, buy and flip. Uh, again, I think it's a little bit slower. Little takes a little bit more patience. If you're the collector, strongly suggest that you get you become like the connoisseur of vintage cards. If you're a set builder, I think you want to go out there and see what other kind of sets. If you're into like building sets that have a lot of value or would draw a lot of attention, I would go ahead and go out there and look to see what is drawing that kind of attention what is drawing that kind of demand sometimes i know with coins there's all these set registries like if you buy a pcgs coin you can then go register that and there's almost these kind of like little competitions between coin collectors to see who has the coolest collection and actually if your collection becomes cool enough it can be featured in an auction or it can be you know that's probably shield bit it up but uh you know, I wonder if the coin, you know, I, I haven't followed this story close enough, but I wonder if, you know, I bet, I guarantee you these auction houses were, were shill bidding up these coin guys too. So if I was these coin guys, I'd be, you know, really, I'd be avoiding a lot of these coin prices. Although coin prices, the higher end coins sell in ex, well in excess of whatever the melt value of the coin. But for me, I don't play in that land. Uh, a lot of the coins I buy are, you know, do have some value um, just in the metal. But anyways, I think you as a collector just w- w- want to find your budget. You want to find w- w- what kind of sets you want to want to collect. If you want to be a set builder, I was talking about the PSA set registry. I think they have a similar thing with cards. I don't know if it's as popular. But maybe go out there and see what kind of demand there is for sets. Maybe there hasn't been one of those sets out there in a while. You can also look at population reports. So I strongly can recommend you doing this before saying, hey, I want to sit down and, and collect a PSA 6 set of XYZ tops. Um, only because there might be a player or two where the PSA 6 is an incredibly tough grade to get. And it might be, an, you know, again, that's what sometimes alluring to some collectors. So if you're looking for that chase in vintage cards, it is the, it is there. It's, it's not not too unlike, you know, chasing a group break or chasing a, a one of one or chasing a, a certain player. What you can do is kind of look for those really low. I'm pretty sure you can just go to PSA, type in a set, type in 1958 tops baseball and just search the whole set and kind of look to see, hey, what player barely has anything graded over a seven, you know, where, you know, maybe a six or a five or whatever grade it might be is his highest grade. And that kind of can give you. You know, a really cool card to chase, not only already graded, but certainly ungraded. If you can, you know, chase around the country for that card and find it in really good condition, maybe the owner of that card has no idea that, uh, you know, a PSA 7 is worth 
five to six, seven, ten times more than a PSA six because there's only one available. You know what I mean? So you can find those kind of, obviously those kind of things have already been researched and looked into, but it doesn't mean that the the opportunity isn't out there. It doesn't mean you can't get in there. I'm not guaranteeing any money or that you can make a lot of money in that strategy. I have no idea if that strategy makes money or not, but from the pure chase perspective, I could see how that could be kind of exciting to kind of have a group of cards uh, that you're chasing, whether it's in a certain condition or certainly some of the higher number cards are harder to get. So you can, you can chase the, the higher number card and the, I don't know if I've ever gotten this question and a lot of you might know, know the reason why high number tops from the past and even now that, you know, the high numbers and heritage and some of these cards, they, they short print them, but they were somewhat naturally short printed or believed to be short printed years ago. And I'm going, I, again, I don't have memory of this too young to have memory. So I'm going off what I read. And again, I probably read this several years ago. So the details might not be complete here, but from what I remember, if you, again, if you don't, if you're not familiar with why high numbered cards, vintage cards are typically worth a little bit more and a little bit harder to find for most sets that tops made is tops came out with sets a long time ago, yes, they were in the bubblegum store for five cents a pack and things like that. But the other way Tops distributed these cards were via sets, um, via the mail. And so I believe Tops would put advertisements, maybe like in comic books or in maybe newspapers or somewhere. Um, back in the fifties and sixties, where you could get advertising. And you could send Tops money, and it would be for Top Series One, and then they would come out with a Top Series Two and have kind of the same offer. Then they would come out with a Tops Series, say three, and that would be a certain number of cards. And then finally, towards the end of the year, they'd come out with their final series, and this was always the high numbered cards because it was the last cards in the set. Now it's believed. There, there might be some data that actually backs this up, and, and if you did research, you might, you might see the, the actual proof it is. But the belief, I believe, is towards the end of the year, less and less people were buying these sets because typically it was, it was the traded players. It was towards the end of the baseball season. You know, you may have bought in series one and series two and kind of lost interest in it. So less people bought the final series there was less interest in it and there was less demand for the players that were going to be in that series. So the high numbers now, um, obviously all the cards are pretty much de- have demand and are desirable, but especially the high numbers and certainly in, in very good condition as well. If you can find the high numbers in good condition, typically that's a home run. Now it's not a guaranteed home run, there are certainly exceptions to that. Not every high number is worth a lot more than maybe the standard card in the rest of the set, but there are certainly cases out there where it certainly isn't. So that's something you definitely want to to look for. Um, 
the reason why I don't collect vintage myself is I'm kind of busy buying and selling it on check on my cards. I didn't talk about this in the beginning of the show, but one of my other strategies outside of buying name, basically I'm like, I told you my strategy for buying stocks is, is almost like the exact same for buying cards right now. I'm buying name brand stocks. I want just the the blue chips of blue chip stocks right now if I'm putting fresh money into stocks. And same with cards. I want the Jeters, Jordans, uh, Brett Favre, Tom Brady, you know, the perfect pinnacle athlete. That's who I want in the cards. Otherwise, if I don't have that, I want a really nice set, really high collectible set, maybe gold refractor, tops chrome, uh, rare, you know, any kind of rare tops chrome, Bowman chrome type refractor. Um, I'm definitely interested in. The other thing I'm interested in is anything pre 1970 football, baseball, basketball. Doesn't matter. I'll buy it all day, especially when people. That's one of the first things I look for in sales. Um, if people are, you can filter, check out my cards on the side. So I often filter it. I just want to look cheapest cards from the 60s and maybe people are blowing some stuff out. Now you want to take a close look at the condition on there. Check on my cards could do a better job, I think, of labeling it because what you'll find sometimes with check on my cards is you'll buy a card, maybe, you know, a card's priced at 25 cents and it's the grade is fair to good and you buy it for 25 cents and you think you got a good deal because there's no other cards on the site so you can price it for 75 cents. Well, they have another card listed good, maybe good to near mint and maybe a ton of people have sent those in and the lowest price is 15 cents. So it just happened less people have one in poor condition. So you want to be careful buying and stuff. You're just kind of quickly buying and selling, buying and flipping cards. Be careful buying the vintage cards. Be careful on what grade you're buying on. Make sure you, what I do is do a broad search for the player's name of that year. So if I'm looking for a 67 tops of a certain player, I'll just go look to see all his 67 cards, 67 tops cards on check out my cards and just make sure what I'm paying for that grade is in within line or usually I'm looking for well below whatever market value would dictate for that card. So if you're a collector, you know, maybe on check out my cards, somebody doesn't, maybe they're just trying to price it at the lowest price and they don't realize their card is centered and it probably should price a little bit more. That's another thing with check on my cards with your vintage cards. Don't feel pressured to have the lowest price. I've had a lot of vintage a lot of vintage cards that I've bought for like a quarter or less and then I've priced them actually higher than maybe two, three, four other people because mine didn't have a condition note, mine didn't have, you know, mine didn't look like it was mangled. You know, you'll see a wide range of condition on, on on check out my cards. So you really with the vintage cards, the picture is really worth a thousand words on check on my cards. So you want to really take advantage of that. And there's certainly probably a lot of opportunities if you're really patient and you want to dig through photos and really find the nicest cards. There's probably some uh, ways to pick those off. Check out my cards. People that are pricing cards more based on what everybody is pricing on instead of valuing it based on the condition. So certainly something 
you want to think about. Well, folks, we have pushed it to a pretty long show, so we'll wrap things up here for today. Thanks for hanging with me all this way. We'll come back some other time and we'll talk about, you know, some different things and we'll try to keep it on topic here. We don't got a lot of, you know, I wouldn't say we're not going to probably not going to focus a lot on new cards coming up here in the next couple weeks to months um, just because I think like I said I think with top series one baseball I don't know a whole lot about it but I know if I wake up in three to four six months chances are it's going to be cheaper and all the cards are going to be out there so I'll be able to get what I want if you're on a higher budget higher kind of run weight with your cash then yeah Maybe you're in there buying the one of ones or the you're trying to get all the little cards out of five or the platinums or the wood cards or whatever there's in there. So good luck to you. And good luck again. Good luck and thank you for tuning in. I don't know what else to say. Obviously, um, you can always send me an email. Sportscardshow at gmail.com. You can send me a tweet at sportscardradio. Come fire me up a little bit. Come, you know, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm an idiot or, you know, tell me that group breakings. Tell me that group breaking is going to take over the world now that we got EPACs. I mean, pretty soon, the group breakers better. This is the year. This is RIP. This is the year you look for something new to do for sure. If you're a group breaker, because the plethora of Panini products is going to bury you. Not to mention, if they, if if somehow you can get a Panini e pack of every product, if you can get a Tops e pack of every product, what the heck do I need a breaker for? Not sure what I would even need them for, considering the break is filled basically twenty four seven on the internet. We'll see what happens but until then i'll be here another time another place we are out of here